want to invite you to open your Bible to the letter of 2 Peter, chapter 1. That's where we'll be this morning as we get started. want to maybe bring you up to speed. Uh, we went through over the course of 15 weeks the book of First Peter. Uh, we took an intermission uh, for Easter and now we are back in the letter of Second Peter. Uh, maybe to, to begin to kind of preface this with, with what's going on. When Peter begins to write the letter to these churches that are spread out through modern day Turkey, he addresses it to these what he calls elect exiles, that they've been chosen by God, saved and redeemed out of their sin, drawn close to God through the death and resurrection of Jesus, and and now they are God's people. They're chosen, elect. But that's not the only word to describe them. He also points out that they are exiles. That they live in a world that is not their home, and that they're there with a mission. A mission to glorify Christ by making disciples. A, a mission to see the name of Jesus ring out across the entire world. And so they've been placed there in this world that is not necessarily conducive to following Christ, that has all sorts of trials, tribulations, and temptations. Peter's encouragement to this church that was hard-pressed and persecuted was to stand firm. To stand firm in the gospel, not to waver from that. To stand firm in their faith. To stand firm in their commitment to one another. And he ends that letter. And then not too long after, we get the letter of Second Peter. But there's some interesting things that happen kind of in the interim. A few things that we think happen from when, when the letter is mailed... With First Peter to when Second Peter is penned. One of the most significant is that the Apostle Paul dies. And he doesn't die of old age. He's martyred and killed by the Roman Emperor. And this is significant because we believe all these churches throughout the area were not started by Peter and his ministry. He was primarily active there in and around Jerusalem. But were ministries that were extensions of what Paul had done in his church planting. So Paul had planted churches throughout a lot of the major cities in Asia Minor. And those churches had then gone on and planted other churches. And so the Christians he's writing to really have their spiritual heritage through the Apostle Paul. And now their leader, the, the man who started their movement, has, has been martyred in addition to the ongoing persecution that they face. And so Peter, with a pastor's heart, sits down to encourage again these struggling Christians. There's something else significant that happens here is that Peter knows he is near death. He tells us when you read through the letter of 2 Peter that he knows it won't be long until he dies. Now, historians tell us that Peter was martyred by the emperor Nero and that he was crucified as his means of death. And out of reverence for the Lord, felt it improper that he should have the, the privilege of dying in the same way that Jesus had. So that he asked them to crucify him upside down. Now, we don't know why Peter knows he's close to death. There's a few options. One could be he's already imprisoned. Another could be he just senses the movement within Rome coming towards Christians not being allowed and being put to death and martyred. It it could be that he's got some special revelation as a prophet from God of what will come. But we do know that Peter is certain his days are numbered. 
And so he sits down to write the letter of Second Peter, which is in many ways a last testament of his life. And Bear will talk some about that next week. But there's clear kind of language that, that it was common between the way the great leaders of the faith, we think of Moses and his final words to the people, and what Peter writes in this letter. It's his swan song. It's his final farewell. So we're going to begin and look at verses 1 through 11 today of chapter 1. To Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. By which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises. So that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of, the, of sinful desire. For this very reason make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Your virtue with knowledge. And knowledge was self-control, and self-control was steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours, and in increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in the same way, for in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray and ask God's wisdom and his spirit to move and open up the scriptures to us this morning. Father God, we thank you for the words of scripture. That through your prophets and apostles, you have left us, Lord, everything we need for life and godliness. That we have what we need in terms of a revelation and record of your son and who he is and what he has done for us. We thank you that your, your word is reliable and authoritative and trustworthy. Lord, I pray for your spirit to reveal to us truth today through your word. To illuminate, to, to make clear to us. Not only what your word says, but how we should live. That your spirit would not only make clear to us, but would also empower us to live in that way. But I pray that he'd be at work glorifying your son in us. That he would move freely in this place. And we ask for your spirit to be at work in our hearts. Because Lord, only he can transform us. And that's what we so desperately need. In Jesus name. Amen. One of the things I love about the scriptures, and you'll see it in this letter in particular, is that God usually leads with the promises, with what he's offering to his people. You don't tend to find God making demands first and promises second. God leads with a few promises for us that are very important. And one of the things I love before we jump into the particular promises that God makes us in this passage is the description that we see of these promises. They begin in verses 1 through 4, which, of course, we just went through. But if you'd pick up in verse 3 with me, 
You'll find that his divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he granted to us his very precious and very great promises. Precious and very great promises. This is the way these blessings that God has offered us in Christ are described by Scripture. We're told that they are precious. Now, we tend to use the word precious in, in a broader context. We will call people precious when they do something cute. Usually a little kid, if you call an adult precious, that's strange. Uh, but small children will do something. Uh, I went to actually went to elementary school with a kid named Precious. And it was a dude. But Precious's big brother was very big, and so none of us ever made fun of him. At least not while Clayton was around. The word precious doesn't mean cute. What it does mean is something of great worth or value. Something that is costly and significant. And so the promises that God's giving us, they're costly, they're important, they're very, very valuable. In addition to that, he says they're very great. The Greek word is majesta. And you can understand just by hearing that, majestic is the word used to describe these promises when the English translators say great. That the promises of God for his people are costly, worthwhile, and majestic. Amazing. The kinds of things that if you could truly understand it, you would just be in awe of it. I mean, think of the word majestic. We don't use it to describe many things. I mean, how frequently does, does that adjective come out of your mouth to describe anything? Majestic. In Greenville, Texas, there's a movie theater that I think has 12 cinemas now, and it used to be eight, and it was the Majestic Eight. There was nothing majestic. It was a metal building with some screens. It was a misnomer. But very seldomly do we use the word majestic to describe anything. And yet, that's the word that the Bible uses to describe these promises. For something to have that kind of characteristic, it's got to be awe-inspiring. That if you truly saw it for what it was, you would see its worth, its value, and you would stand in awe. These promises are phenomenal. And so what are they? We find them in verses 1 through 4. You look at verse 2, the simplest thing in his greeting is important for us to understand. He says, may the grace and peace be multiplied to you. Through the work of Jesus, we have this promise of God's gracious disposition towards us. God has given us grace. It's a gift. And it's an ongoing promise for those who know the Lord. So when we talk about grace, we're not simply talking about a, a prayer before a meal. What we're talking about is God's unearned favor and kindness towards us as sinners. And not only did He give it to us once, but it's a continual thing that says to be multiplied to us. That our experience of walking in the grace of God, of knowing His grace, is to grow deeper and stronger and to grow exponentially in our lives. And not only is there God's grace, but there's peace. That while we were enemies with God, running and pursuing sinful desires, God through His Son and His calling of us has made us at peace with Him. And so we walk in the grace of God in peace, restored to Him by Jesus. And that is a gift and promise from God. And it is one that Peter desires to see our experience and relationship with God grow and multiply. So we have this promise of God's grace to us and peace with Him. 
Note also in verse 1 that we've been granted an equal standing. Notice that the apostle writes to these regular people and says, you've been granted a faith and through that faith an equal standing with us. There's a lot in that phrase. See, Peter was, was raised in a Jewish home, knew the scriptures from childhood. And there was a clear dividing line between the Jews and the Gentiles, which is essentially everyone who's not Jewish. The Gentiles were godless and pagan. The Jews had the revelation, the very words of God. And, and, and for all of their failings, generally at this time, wanted to know them and at least live them at, according to their own tweaks and and plans, but they, they had the revelation of God, and there was a sense of supremacy that they walked around with because of God choosing them. And Peter says, We've got an equal standing by the grace of God, the faith that we have in Christ. Because of his righteousness. Because our standing before God isn't determined upon our relative moral goodness, it's determined upon the righteousness of Christ. Peter gets at something very simple that we need to understand, which is that before God, we are either righteous or unrighteous. We are either sinful or justified and forgiven. There aren't incremental steps in between. There's not sort of righteous. The difference isn't our moral goodness, but rather Jesus's righteousness and goodness being credited to us through faith. To unpack that simply, what that means is that when when God looks upon us as sinful as we are, the lenses he sees it through is the blood of Christ. And he says, on behalf of the sacrifice of Christ for you, I see you as righteous. We give an equal standing. The Jew, the Gentile, the apostle, the guy in the pew. When it comes to God, because of the righteousness of Christ, God views us as righteous. He also tells us that we've been given everything we need for life and godliness. Everything we need to walk the Christian life. That's a compelling promise for me. Because I don't know about you, I tend to struggle with my sin nature. Even after years of walking with Him, years of of trying to put this thing to death, years of, of trying to follow Christ faithfully, I still find myself wrestling with sin and temptation, just like every one of you. And it's a great promise to be able to lean on and go back to and say, you know what, in this moment, in this very moment, God has given me everything I need to walk faithfully with Him. He's already supplied all the resources I need at this moment to be faithful to Him. He's done the work. He's given us all that we need. It's been granted to us. The fourth promise the scriptures give us here is that we are partakers of the divine nature. That's a, that's a word we don't say a lot, divine nature. That's not a phrase that's common. And to be honest, I can't think of the last time I said the word partake. So what does the scripture mean to say we are partakers of the divine nature? Another way to translate that word partaker is participant. And, and, and here's what God has done for us. Is that when you trust in Christ, when you believe in Him, the Bible says that the very Spirit of God comes into you and takes up residence within you. Now, you're not God. You never will be. You're not a little bit God. You're you. And I'm going to tell you that you're not God. Now, there's this trend in our culture to think that we are. To think that we set all moral standards of truth and that that whatever idea of God there is, He has to line up to us and our opinion. 
as if in some way, in our limited perspective, we have greater view than an all-supreme being. And so the real test, if if you'd like to test whether or not you are God, I've got a simple one for you. It's very, very easy. If you can get fresh, hot, ready Chick-fil-A on Sunday lunch, if you could make that happen for me, I believe you just might be omnipotent. If you could get whatever you want, whenever you want, if you have that kind of power, not just over things and items, but, but if you can transform someone else's heart like that. None of us have that kind of authority, and we all know it. But we've been given a gift through the Holy Spirit where we get to participate with God as the Holy Spirit takes up residence within us. So we're partakers. We've been given the very presence of God with us through His Holy Spirit. It's a gift. It's a promise. And for those who walk with the Lord, who know Christ, that that promise is enduring, never to be taken away from us. In verse 4, the Scriptures tell us we've been cleansed of our sin. He says you've escaped the corruption of the world. Now, notice we haven't escaped the world. That's not what he's saying. He's reminding these people again, you're elect exiles, you're exiles, you're in the world. Now, what you have escaped, while it's not the world and we don't get to put up a high fence and have our compound, what we have done is escape the corruption. Not the world, but it's corruption. As God has given us everything we need to to battle sin and to be victorious, as He's given us all that we need to walk faithfully with Him, sending His Spirit to dwell in us and cleansing us from the stain and guilt and shame of sin. We've been given these great, majestic, amazing promises. And I want to note that all of these things are a gift by God. You'll see this phrase pop up several times, that it happens because of the righteousness of Christ, by the knowledge of Christ, and that it happens because God has granted it to us. You'll see that phrase several times just in those four verses that this has been granted by God to us. It's a gift. We didn't earn it. We we didn't work hard enough that God said, okay, now I'll repay them with this. This was a gift that God gives every Christian. This is a gift. It's been granted to us. Now, here's the question. If God has given us all of these things, what are we to do? Because we've already read a few things and we'll come back to them where God has actually given us commands here. And so let's begin in verse 5 and you'll see this. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with goodness, goodness with brotherly affection, brotherly affection with with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful. So we've got this thing where all the stuff has been given to us, but then he's going to say, now because you've been given all of these resources, because the Holy Spirit is inside you, you've been cleansed from sin, you've been, been empowered to overcome your sinful desires, because you've been given all of that, he tells us, now, make every effort to grow in that. And so we have these promises from God, but now comes in alongside with those promises is our effort. Our effort to walk in faithfulness. The Christian life is not lived by our power, but it does require our effort. 
That's what he's told us here. I've given you everything you need. Now you need to work with me. You have all the tools. You're loaded. You're set it up to succeed. But now you've got to step into it and be diligent. So driven by the grace and peace that God has given to us through Jesus Christ and a passion to glorify Christ out of love for him and love for others, we set out to be diligent, to be focused on living the Christian life. And he gives us a bit of a plan on how to move forward. He begins with faith. He says, now you have this faith that you've been given. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 tells us that faith is a gift from God. So if you stand here today, you believe that Jesus is the only Son of God who died for you, a sinner, and rose again, that's a gift from God that you believe that. That's what Ephesians 2 says. So that's been given to you as a gift. Now, with that gift, here's what you need to develop with it, is virtue. Now, a virtue is a word that philosophers used to use a lot that, that doesn't tend to get thrown around a bunch. But it means moral excellence or, or excellence of character. So Jesus has redeemed you. He set you free from the, the corruption of the world. Now, now add to your faith. Now that you've been saved, begin to walk in that identity. Begin to be who Jesus has called you to be and his spirit is transforming you into. Let that faith take root in you. It says to add to that virtue knowledge. Depth of understanding of God's goodness for you. Depth of understanding of who God is and who we are and His grace to us. So this is important and I want you to understand the, the, the line that He takes us through because it's very different than the line we often go through as new believers or we want to take new believers through. Our tendency is to say someone's come to faith in Christ, let's fill them with knowledge. Knowledge is good. He's just told us you need to develop knowledge. But, but what does he tell us before we focus on knowledge? Virtue. Now, now certainly kind of excellence of character requires uh, an amount of knowledge because we have to have a basic understanding of right and wrong if we're going to have excellence of character. But in terms of a focal point, our focal point in the Christian faith is we're beginning our walk. And as it continues, should not be to grow in knowledge so much as it begins with growing in excellence of character. That we're being transformed day in and day out by Christ. And that as we pursue knowledge, the intention is that it transforms us, not just informs us. So depth of understanding. Followed by self-control. Resisting our temptation. Putting to death our sin nature. Being disciplined. We don't talk about self-control a lot in our culture. In fact, our culture has found a way to really glorify impulse. Just do it. And we, we say things like carpe diem, right? Seize the day, which means don't think about tomorrow. I want you to think through this. The entire strategies of companies that are in consumer marketing is to get you to buy on impulse. I'm not going to say names because I don't want to bag on any particular stores. But in you look at the grocery market business. One of the stores has, has installed cameras throughout the store. Not for security purposes. But for traffic flow monitoring. 
They want to track and being able to control people's movement throughout the store. Because if they can position particular products at certain locations, there's a science to it. You will buy stuff on the end cap, even if you don't need it. And they know that. They understand the impulse buy. Another store has gotten so good at this that they got in trouble because they had found kind of in, in their mathematical assessments of product purchases that if if a woman purchased X products, she was probably going to have a baby. And they started sending out like congratulations, you're pregnant emails to people. Because they knew they're buying these things, they're pregnant. And I remember reading the article, one of the, their vice president of marketing said it turned, we thought it'd be helpful. It turned out it was just creepy <laughs> and told the story of a dad being angry, calling the store manager because his 18 year old daughter had just gotten an email. The story finishes and the store was right. Um, it's a science. Recognizing that, that we have a tendency to want to do things on impulse. God's saying, wait a minute, you gotta think through things. Be sober-minded is the language the Bible uses a lot. Be sober-minded. So yeah, you wanna develop knowledge, but guess what? With self-control, we start to apply it. We start to use it. It starts to guide our decision-making, not just inform our test-taking. Doesn't make us the most intellectual guy in the small group Bible study, but rather the guy who walks most faithfully with the Lord. And so to add to that self-control is steadfastness. Another way to say that would be patient endurance. Continuing, plotting day after day. William Carey, who did amazing work spreading the gospel through India, attributed the success of the ministry with his ability to use the word plod. He said, I'm a plotter. I can move consistently towards a single direction for any period of time. So to that, I owe many things. Just pressing on. This points out to us that the work of the Holy Spirit in us and through us is not usually instantaneous. It's usually slow and gradual. The transformation of the human heart, it sometimes happens like that. And then for most of us, will be just step by step, God rooting out sin, rooting out unrighteousness, rooting out wicked desires, and replacing them with knowledge of what is true and a desire to walk in obedience to that. It's slow. So you'll need to be steadfast. To this steadfastness, he says, godliness. Just practical holiness. And so what does that mean? That, that was a really helpful word to say holy as a definition for anything requires that you then go back and define the word holy. It's simply this, guys. We develop and grow in our commitment to be faithful to the Lord. Steadfastness speaks of our effort. Godliness speaks of our hearts. We're not talking about being good in terms of behavior but that over time the heart begins to transform as we walk in self-control. We begin to desire new things. We have a life of devotion to the Lord. It's into that godliness you need to add brotherly affection. And particularly what's in view here when the Bible says brotherly love, brotherly affection is the way Christians care for one another. And it points out an important thing when understanding the church is that the church is not a program or a place. The church is a family. 
We're the family of God. The, the analogy used throughout Scripture is that we've been adopted. We don't get adopted into a club. That's not how it works. You get initiated into a club. You might pay dues. You might go through a, a new member's training. But you don't get adopted into a club. You get adopted into a family. And so there's brotherly affection and brotherly love. A concern for one another. And he says, and add to that brotherly affection, love. And the Greek word there is agape. Which signifies a sacrificial, selfless, giving love. There's a line in a worship song that I've been listening to lately that says, Real love is not afraid to bleed. That's the kind of love of Christ for us, and that's the kind of love He's calling us to, is a sacrificial love, where we put others over ourselves. Now, that's our effort. With the tools God has given us, with the power of the Spirit, out of a passion to see Christ glorified in our lives and in others. He says, go live this way. Now, now he tells us something important here, is that these attributes should describe us as Christians. And in chapter 1, verse 8, we get a little glimpse here, and I want you to take a look at this. He says, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, other translations will say, and in increasing measure. And it's helpful to think through this is that this is a trajectory for life. God's not saying, okay, if you are a believer, you're saved instantaneously. This becomes true of you. What he is saying is that if you're walking with Christ and you know him, this should be the established trajectory of your life set by the Holy Spirit. These things, these attributes should be growing in you. Doesn't mean you won't slip, doesn't mean you won't struggle, but that these things establish the direction that your life is headed. Now with that, with, with kind of laying out what our efforts are, the scriptures are going to give us two important things. One, it's going to give us a warning, and second, it's going to give us some encouragement. So I want you to look at verses 8 and 9, and we're going to see a bit of a warning here from the Apostle Peter after establishing the trajectory of the Christian life. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind and having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So I want to stop there because here's the, the crux of this morning. It is incredibly possible. For us to grow in all sorts of knowledge and understanding of the gospel, of theology, and of our Bibles, and be unfruitful in our spiritual walk. Did you just notice that? He said, look, these attributes need to be developing and growing in you, because they will keep you from becoming unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Which means that there is a way to have all sorts of knowledge and be completely dead and unfruitful. We need to think through the story of the New Testament. Jesus is consistently butting heads with a group of men. The Pharisees and the high priests. And you want to know something about the Pharisees and the high priests? They would blow up on American Bible Challenge. I don't know if you've seen that. It's the Bible quiz show with Jeff Foxworthy. I'm feeling pretty good. I got my chances are good if we go on the show. Um, but that has nothing to do with being faithful to Jesus. The Pharisees, the Sadducees will blow you out of the water on Bible trivia. But when they're face to face with the eternal Son of God, they don't recognize Him. You see that? They, they know the Bible, but they don't know God. That's a possibility. 
And Peter, who loves us, who's a pastor, he says, look, it is possible for you, if you're not kind of growing in this right trajectory of the Spirit, transforming you, if you're camping out on knowing stuff, to know a lot and be completely unfruitful. And the reason I say that's a warning is because it doesn't end with that. Jesus is abundantly clear about unfruitful branches. We went through John 15 about a year ago, but I want to read to you out of John 15, just the first couple verses of the chapter. He says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. So he uses the same analogy of being fruitful. And again, he points to us. He said, look, every Branch is in me that, bear, that doesn't bear fruit, the Father takes away. A few verses later, the scriptures are going to say they're gathered, thrown into a fire, and burned. Now, we can talk to all the nuances and questions about this, but, but he, here's what I just want to say today about that. that. Whatever you want to call it, it's not a good thing. Like being thrown in a heap and burned, whatever judgment you think that is, whatever discipline you think that is from God, could we agree it doesn't sound delightful? It's important that we be fruitful. And I want you to note that that Jesus as the vine, that's the analogy, he's the, the main kind of stalk that goes into the ground that brings nutrients to the branches. He's working so that the branches are fruitful. And the Father is at work. Why? So the branches are fruitful. This scripture tells us that the Holy Spirit takes up residence in us as we partake in the divine nature so that we'll be fruitful. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the entirety of the Trinity is at work in us for our fruitfulness. That's what he wants from us. And if we get off track and we're not focused on the Spirit transforming us, we will be unfruitful. The language of fruit bearing is important because you need to step back a little bit and you'll see this. Think about it from an agricultural worldview. So we think of fruit. What I'm thinking of when someone says fruitfulness is about enjoying eating the fruit. Right? I want to go to H-E-B. And I want to see uh, good, fresh, ripe fruit, no soggy grapes, no, no uh, strawberries that have the little white stuff growing on them hidden in the bottom. I don't want any of that. I want good fruit. And I want it because I want to take it home and I want to eat it. That's the end of the story for me. But, but if we live in an agricultural world, fruit doesn't end with enjoying produce. Fruit is essential for the, for the plant's reproduction. See, all of our stuff is kind of genetically altered, so you can't take those seeds and do anything with them. But what they call an heirloom seed or a natural seed before the scientists got involved in farming, that comes from the fruit. Bearing fruit is essential not only for usefulness of the plant, but also for its reproduction, for life to continue. So you'll be unfruitful. You won't experience the transformation God has for you and you won't get to see it in other people's lives. In fact, the worst thing, if you're not going to kind of pursue this trajectory laid out, the worst thing you could do is try to make disciples. Peter looks at the, uh, Jesus looks at the Pharisees in his day and he says, you go to the ends of the earth to win one convert and then you make them twice the sons of hell that you are. Like that's not a good word for them. But if we're going to pursue faithfully this trajectory, we want, want to take faith and add to that faith virtue and add to that virtue, uh, you know, 
moral excellence and we want to add to that commitment to the Lord and we want to add to that a love for others. We want to follow that path that he's laid out for us. Then you, you go, you'll be fruitful. Because the Spirit's done the work if you'll commit yourselves to it and let that planted seed of faith take root. So there's a warning. But there's also a bit of encouragement here. Look at verse 10 with me. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided into you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, again, he's going to tell us and remind us, you need to be diligent. You need to stay focused. This is important. And then he tells them you need to make your election sure. Now, this is a phrase people can get off base on. And I want to talk through it for a moment. The description of how we come to faith in Christ is commonly referred to in the Bible as election. That is God's choosing and saving us while we ran from him. He says, now, make that sure. Well, wait a minute. How do I make that sure if God did it? I didn't do it. He chose, he redeemed, this is his work. So how do I make it sure? And and, and the answer to that question is this, is that you're not trying to make it certain from God's perspective, you're trying to make it obvious from man's perspective. So to make your election sure is to let it be certain and known for all who witness your life that you are the Lord's, that he has redeemed you, that he has transformed you. Let it be seen. Make it sure. So that all may know. He says, now, if you do this, if you stay focused on him, I want you to understand this thing. Is that it has been richly provided for you to have entrance into the kingdom. And I love the language there. It's been richly provided. So it's, it's not that if we're really good, we might squeak in when, when God's not looking. But it's been richly provided. So there's nothing lacking to get, grant your entrance into the kingdom of God. He's done it for you. The, the Greek word there for richly provided to you is one word. And it carries with it this connotation that it has been done in abundance. It's also in a third person passive, if that makes any sense. So you're not providing for yourselves. It has been done for you by someone else. That by the righteousness of Christ, all that is necessary for you to have entrance into the kingdom has been taken care of if you've trusted in him. It's been done for you. And not just a little bit, not just enough to let you squeak in, but richly. And I think it's important after kind of laying out for us the promises of God and then saying, okay, now these are your efforts. Now I want to warn you that you can get off base here, that, that he comes back to this and reminds us again of the majestic and costly promises of God to us. That he doesn't just leave us saying, now, now go work hard, be good. He reminds you, this is what the Lord has done for you. This is what he's done for you and what he'll do in you. And he will make a way for you to have entrance into the kingdom. He's done it through the blood of Jesus. You receive it. And, and the heart of this is, is that if we understand the promises that God has made to us, the work that he has done for us, and the future that he has secured for us, then we should have no kind of lack of motivation to pursue him. No lack of motivation to follow the trajectory of his spirit transforming us. If we understand that gift, that kind of a gift, that kind of generosity should captivate our hearts and should drive us to live that way. And that's what he's getting at. 
is that in Jesus, you've been given a new life. Go enjoy it. Go live it for the glory of Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your son. We thank you for all that he secured for us when he died for our sins and rose again. We praise you that you've given us a new life. That he even used the words that we've been born again. It's as if we started over. That we've been granted grace and peace before you by your son's righteousness. That you've brought us into your people. Giving us equal standing with those saints who followed you for a lifetime. That, that you have rescued us from the corruption of sin and cleansed us from it. And that you've given us all that we need to walk in faithfulness with you. Lord, I pray that your spirit would be at work in our hearts capturing us so that our desire and our passion is to glorify your son. And that in doing that, we begin to walk faithful, faithfully and we'd be fruitful. Lord, is to avoid your discipline and to experience the joy of you transforming us and transforming others. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.